I shared this, I, I don't believe I've ever shared it with the church. I've shared this story in prayer meeting before about our very first church. And it was tiny enough and small enough that after just a couple uh, Sabbaths, we pretty much got to know everybody. And in our church, there was not a member, but a young single mom who'd been attending for about, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two years. And after I'd been there for a while, she asked me to uh, continue studying because she'd been studying with the pastor that was there before us. Um, and so we did, and we went off and on for a while. Eventually, eventually, finally, she was uh, uh, decided to be baptized, but uh, that was later. Uh, this particular Sabbath, I, there's, there was also something about this young mom. She was, she's bright, she's intelligent. She was always, always challenging you. She wasn't gonna let you get away with any uh, baloney, if you would. Uh, if you were gonna say something, you'd better be able to back it up. That's what I, what I admired the most about her, what I liked about her. But she also seemed to have the worst of luck at times. Just one of those things that life continued to continue to throw curveballs at her constantly, and she had the worst of luck. We were there for three years. I think she moved four times, had to move four times, just you know, to be able to have a place for her and her little girl, completely dedicated to uh, raising that little girl. And this particular Sabbath, we had potluck every Sabbath, and sometimes, uh, you know, I mean, Sabbaths are like uh, a lot of um, other things in our life when it becomes routine. Sometimes it could be good Sabbath. There's such thing as bad Sabbaths, right? Yeah, just because it's Sabbath, you know, doesn't mean it's good. Maybe uh, it might be better than every other bad day, uh, but they're, they're Sabbaths. But this particular Sabbath, it was not one of those. It was a great Sabbath. Uh, church, uh, Sabbath school, potluck, it all went right. Fellowship felt right. And she hung around, and she was around. And, and I just always remember how good everybody felt going home. But what, uh, I got home, and I changed clothes, and just as I did, the phone rang, and it was her. Her voice was desperate. Her landlords of her current place were waiting for her when she got home, saying that she had to be out, and that they had told her that she had to be out by noon on Saturday. And it was already three o'clock. And if, they, if she didn't get out before then, then she would lose her deposit, and she's counting on her deposit to be able to move into her next place. So she was desperate. So she knew the weight of what she was asking me, of what she was about to ask me, and then added at the end of it this, would this qualify Pastor Greg as an ox in the ditch situation? And I knew the ox in the ditch as every Adventist knows the ox in the ditch. It's, it's how we gauge whether or not we can I'm gonna put it this way on purpose. It's how we gauge whether or not we can get away with doing any work on the Sabbath. And I said, yes, of course. And so I uh, made arrangements uh, to get a truck and, and we headed over there. But what, it didn't hit me, that story, it didn't hit me until just a few years ago when we were going through the Gospel of John and this uh, Story, this uh, comes up in Luke. We were looking at Luke where it says, where that passage says, the ox in the ditch. And you know, we don't even quote it right. Actually, Luke says, which one of you who has an ox or a child 
in a ditch, would not let them up. We don't even go near the child. We only mention the ox. And what hit me was, was that Jesus brought that up, trying to tell them, look, I did this for this woman on the Sabbath. I healed her completely. Which one of you wouldn't even let their ox out of the ditch? It was Jesus' way of telling them, that ox means more to you than this woman. He was trying to point that out. And when I got that just a couple years ago at camp meeting, I realized that she'd been going to our church for nearly three years. And all we taught her about the Sabbath was that she was less important than an ox. Is that what we were supposed to teach? Did we do it on purpose? No. We spent two months, three months, almost three months in the parables. Teachings that were designed as we looked out for people who were on the outside of the church. They were out and about. They were in a, in a circle that maybe knew Jesus, maybe came to hear him preach, and he knew this was the only time he would have this time with them, so he told parables to them because he wanted it to hit their ears differently. So that's why we called the parables his outside voice. And I know that when I did my last parable last week and, and, and summed it up, I wanted to have this as my scripture reading. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And I looked it up, and I wanted to look it up, and as I did, I, I, I took it and I pasted it so that I could get it uh, to Mike. Mike was our elder last week. But I read a little bit and of course, this is found in the first third of the Sermon on the Mount. And the contrast hit me immediately because I'd spent 12 weeks listening to his outside voice, adjusting my ears to what his teaching sound like when you're outside the church, when you're outside that room of disciples. But the Sermon on the Mount was meant for who? It was meant for the inside. And I immediately heard the difference. The sermon is a decidedly different tone because it's for those on the inside. The sermon is Jesus' inside voice. The parables for his outside voice. The sermon for his inside voice. We know because the Sermon on the Mount begins this way. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and teach them. He's talking to only his disciples while the rest of the crowd is following him up the mountain. Now I believe that by the time he finished it, the crowd had caught up, but also when he gets done with it, nobody understands it. Only the disciples were meant to. So it's the inside voice. I knew that I wasn't ready to start our fall series. I wanted to do a fall series on prophecy and I know I wasn't ready. So what I thought I'd do is, you wanna spend a little time now listening to his inside voice? We spent all that time listening to his outside voice. Maybe spend just a little while listening to his inside voice. I don't think I need to go through the entire sermon on the mount. That's a pretty big series. But just to spend a little time, if that's okay with you. Are you ready to hear his inside voice? So last week we saw that the sharpest contrast between the outside and the inside 
listeners. What would appeal to them the most is that we had this self-righteous Pharisee and this tax-collecting sinner, and that that was the difference. You had the outside and the inside. And we know that Jesus said he told this parable for all those who considered themselves righteous and held others in contempt. The difference between the two when they come to the temple to pray is the authenticity and humility that the sinner shows that the self-righteous one would not. The self-righteous one puts his confidence in the standard of the letter of the law and he's spiritually blind and arrogant. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't believe he's a sinner, he just believes he's righteous because he's so much more of a righteous person than that sinner over there. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. And by the way, does he use the spirit of the law as his standard of righteousness, or does he use the letter of the law as his standard of righteousness? He uses the commandments. I'm not a thief, I'm not a rogue, I'm not an adulterer. Reminding God of who he is. I'm so much, I may not be perfect, but I'm so much better than that guy. The tax collector has no self-righteous delusion. He confesses readily his state. And Jesus says, as he confesses readily his authenticity, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. No righteousness, no pretense, no arrogance, no using the letter of the law as a standard, because as far as he's concerned, he's been reminded every day of his life that he's broken every commandment. And he just says, have mercy on me, and Jesus gives him actual righteousness. I say unto you, this man went to his house right with God, justified. Sermon's designed that way too. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes, trying to instill upon us who believe that we are disciples how we should approach God, the authenticity, the humility, We're to be poor in spirit. We're to be mourning and meek and hungry and thirsty. Hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Why? Because we have none. The word that Jesus uses for hunger and thirst is not, oh, I I didn't have lunch today, I'm a little hungry. No, it's starvation. It's famine inducing. Why do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because we absolutely have none. He said, you don't play the game that the self-righteous do. You have none. All you have to do is ask me. I'm the only one that can give it to you. So people are grateful for his mercy. Moving on in the sermon, they're great, so grateful for his mercy that they become merciful. And they do it with a pure heart, with a pure motive. They will make peace. They will reconcile. They will uh, participate in the ministry of reconciliation. At the very least, they won't do it by causing dissension, by arguing over points of the letter of the law and who's better and who's not. They'll take persecution and they will martyr themselves, even knowing that they're right. Blessed are you when people accuse you falsely of all kinds of lies. They know they're right, yet they take their rightness to prison. They take it to the grave. They don't even defend themselves. They won't fight back for their reputation. 
then that makes us salt and light to the world. Humbly, loving, merciful witnesses. Simply being light and salt to show people where we got our righteousness. Then it's like he knows what the self-righteous would substitute for this. It's the easier path, the standard of righteousness according to the law. It's an easier path. We can use it for something it wasn't designed to do, uh, to try to prove to uh, people that we are righteous. The way that our self-righteous Pharisee did and the way that he reveals this to us. He said, look, only insiders argue and fight over these standards. The outsiders don't care about these standards. They fight with each other about it. What you can and what you can't do, whether or not it's an ox in the ditch, whether or not it's emergency work, whether or not you can do it or not. Who are the only ones that care about this? The insiders or the outsiders? We're the only ones that do. And we could fight with each other because we know that we can't measure up to Jesus. The tax collector couldn't even lift his eyes. The self-righteous compared himself to the sinner. The tax collector compares himself to nobody but God and he can't even lift up his eyes. Have mercy on me. Jesus says, that's the guy on the inside. So that's the context, if you will, by the time you get to these verses. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why does he come up with that? Why does he say that? Because he's already been accused of not following the law. He's already been accused of not knowing what the Sabbath is and what it's for. He said, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Which is very, very interesting. The, the, the self-righteous, the ones on the inside, the, 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 those people, they see him fulfilling the law and they think he's violating it. I like to say that Jesus comes with the law written upon his heart to a nation that only has the law written on tablets and paper. And when they witness the law being acted out, being incarnated through the love and grace of Christ, they look at that and they call him the devil. He didn't come to abolish, he came to what? He came to fulfill, which means he also didn't merely come to keep. Jesus doesn't keep the commandments. He fulfills them. Which means this is what we seek. We should be seeking fulfillment, not mere keeping. By the way, when will the law and the letter pass away? When will it pass away? He said when heaven and earth does. Does heaven and earth ever pass away? Does it ever pass away? No. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Yeah, well, it did pass away. But no, it was made what? New. It was fulfilled. The one who was seated on the throne, see, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are trustworthy and true.
This is what we seek. Heaven and earth does not pass away. Earth is made new. It's fulfilled. So, he says, therefore, he he goes on, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not, who, who does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, he's saying, being like God, being like Jesus for a disciple is not an option for us. We can choose either to serve him in the humility of of having to come to him for all of our righteousness, of having to live in his love and his grace, or we can serve him by trying to merely keep his commandments and appear righteous. He says you can't do both. As citizens living in this kingdom, but citizens actually of the kingdom of heaven, we look to seek to fulfill, not merely to keep. But is he talking about the results? Is he talking about the letter keeping? No, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the self-righteous, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. You'd better exceed the letter of the law standard of righteousness keepers. You need to be better than the best. What does it mean to be better than the best? Righteousness has to exceed self-righteousness. See, the Pharisee's righteousness was based on what he didn't do according to the letter of the law. Unfortunately, it's also based on the tax collector's inability to do that. Sabbath, and I hate to bring this up because, because it sometimes lets us off the, off, off the hook. See, they broke down even the Sabbath into livable bite-sized rules. That's what I was saying. They broke down sin into little manageable bite-sized pieces and they took sin on one bite at a time trying to achieve perfect righteousness. And they did it with the Sabbath. 613 rules. 248 commands, 365 prohibitions, all bolstered with 1,521 emendations or additions to those. And I hate bringing that up because we as Seventh-day Adventists go, well, that's not us. We don't have a Talmud. We don't have a Mishnah. Oh, yeah, we do. We just don't call it that. How many Sabbath schools have we spent talking about what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do on the Sabbath? We have a Talmud, we just don't call it that. I have to tell you, Al told me the funniest story. Is it okay if I tell it, Al? His house in Angwin, he and his wife had had a pool in the back. And one Sabbath, they had a bunch of people over and they were outside, okay? But it was hot. It was hot in England. And when it's hot in the Napa Valley, there's nowhere to go because they're not built for it. <laughs> Very few houses even have air conditioning. When it's hot there, it just, you know. But he said that they had a bunch of families over and everything. Finally, one, one of his friends sidled up to him and said, you know what? I hope one of those kids falls into the pool because I am really hot. <laughs> and you're laughing because you know what that means, right? We're not allowed to what on the Sabbath? But if a kid falls in the pool, then I get to get in. (laughs) 
So I don't get too high and mighty with the rabbis and the Mishnah and the Talmud. I have my own Mishnah and Talmud. And in some ways, we've even exceeded this. See, when Paul was Saul, he claimed that his attempted relationship to the father by law-keeping was perfect. He said, my, my, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, as unto the law, perfect. Match that, he said. I'm absolutely perfect at law-keeping. And then in the same breath as Paul, he'll say, but I was utterly, absolutely lost. I could keep the law perfectly, but I also felt that I was pleasing God by murdering men, women, and children, all because they believed in that little country rabbi from Galilee as the Messiah. I was perfect law-keeping, but I was so unmerciful and unloving, I could not call myself a son of my father anymore. So what does the inside voice mean when he says to exceed that righteousness. It's the heart. Jesus shows what's possible when the law is written in the heart. Jesus shows what's possible when it's incarnated into a selfless, loving heart. And he does it by comparing it then to the law of fulfillment. That's what he's going to do in these passages. I wanna show you what it's like to put the two side by side. Remember, a parable was a side by side illustration. It was a physical illustration of something that he wanted them to know heavenly. And in this way, he's gonna do it with fulfilling and the letter. So he says this, he begins this way in the law. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said. He's saying this just isn't the Old Testament. It's just not uh, the commandments that you find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but it includes all oral tradition, all the Mishnah, all the Talmud. Now, the, uh, don't get me wrong, the Talmud and the Mishnah were not written down until two centuries later, but they began the Talmud and the Mishnah the day that Moses brought it down from the mountain. All the Talmud and the Mishnah does is try to figure out how to live these commandments. They've been doing it for 4,000 years. Everything you've ever heard about this commandment, he says, everything you've ever heard, you've heard it said that thou shalt not what? That thou shalt not murder. If Jesus had just met the commandments, he would have said, you, you have seen it written as it's written. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to include everything we've ever even commented about this commandment. You shall not murder, he says. So in order to keep the letter of the law, all I have to do is in my interaction with my fellow human beings, I have to refrain from rendering the life out of them. If I've done that, I've kept the law, right? Have I kept it perfectly? Yep, perfectly. Because all it says is thou shall what? Thou shall not. If I can manage coming away from an interaction, if you can manage coming away from an interaction with me, no matter how much I frustrated you, if you, can, if you can walk away from it without killing me, congratulations, you kept the commandment perfectly. But then what does Jesus say? But I say to you, if you are angry 
with a brother or sister. You'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. What? If I'm what? Angry. Now the law takes on something different, doesn't it? I thought all I had to do was keep from killing you. Now I'm not even allowed to what? Not even allowed to be angry with you. How many here kept the law perfectly this week in our interactions with human beings? Do you get where Jesus is going? Where'd he go? He took it from here to where? See, here's where anger starts. Here's where anger is. Here's where murder is. Something has to happen here. Here's where murder is, okay? But where does anger begin? It begins here. Anger like murder, murder, he says, must be under our control. Fulfillment means the heart. It means not just uh, doing right things, it means actually being right. See, when we get angry, who do we immediately blame? Whoever we're angry at. Because there isn't anybody here that does not get angry for a reason, right? Every reason that everybody has. Is there anybody, have you ever met anybody who got angry with somebody who did not believe that it was righteously indignant? We all believe our anger is righteously indignant, don't we? You make me so angry. Jesus says that's pretty stupid. He said, that's a stupid thing to say. That's like a murderer looking at his victim saying, you made me murder you. Murder began somewhere, it begins in the heart. Jesus said, a disciple, the inside voice says, this goes straight to your heart. If you think that you've got it knocked simply because you haven't killed anybody, let me get you to think about this. Let me put it side by side for you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Joseph Telushkin, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, in his book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, puts it this way. He says, so it's important that we control our rage, however righteous it may be. Human beings may well have little control over what provokes their anger, but all of us, unless we're under the influence of mind-altering drugs or suffer some mental illness or have certain types of brain damage, usually can control how we express our anger. Psychologist Richard Gellis tells of a marriage counselor who was interviewing a man who often physically abused his wife. Why don't you beat up your wife, the counselor said. Why do you do that? Why do you beat her up? I can't control myself, the man responded. The counselor said, a very wise person, the counselor said, then why don't you just kill her? Just shoot her or stab her. Why don't you just do that? The husband had no response because the only answer he could have given was, I can't shoot or stab my wife. I'd get in trouble. I might permanently do damage. Which means the man knew very well what he was doing. Remember, Jesus didn't say that it was okay as long as I don't insult somebody or call them names. He said it simply is not okay to be what? to be angry. He said that if we're angry, we're liable to judgment. The solution is not merely to act then, but to what? Do something about it. 
Do something about your anger. And he says, what I want you to do, what, what somebody who's a disciple of me will only be dictated by how I would go about this. And he says this, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, are you angry? That would qualify as having something against you. If I'm angry at them, I've got to be angry at them for a reason. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Reconciled. If you're angry, he says, go and be what? Go and be reconciled. And the only way you can reconcile with somebody that you're angry with is you have to go to them. Peacemaking, reconciliation should be the first and foremost thing a disciple of Christ will do. Even before we attempt to try to worship God that day. If there's somebody that you're angry at and you came to church today, he says you should have taken care of that before you even came to church. See, I know that I'm looking at people who have something against somebody because you're looking at a preacher who has some things against somebody, and no, I didn't take care of it before I came to preach today either. We don't do that, that isn't our first thing. What is the first thing that we do? What's the first thing that we do when we're angry with somebody? Okay, I'll confess. I go tell somebody else. If I'm angry at Ed, I'm gonna go tell Grady, okay? Because I think if Grady's on my side, then if I ever, if I ever approach Ed, I've got Grady on my side. See, I treat Ed then now as my what? As an adversary, as an enemy. And all he did was, I almost said, all he did was make me angry. <laughs> Maybe all he did was provoke me. Yeah, we don't have control over being provoked. We only have control as to how we act. See, but when I do finally get around to wanting to confront him, I better make sure I've got some allies. And Ed's not gonna argue with Grady. He'll argue with me, but he isn't gonna argue with Grady. Right? We tell a whole bunch of people who can't do anything about it, but we sure feel better. We harbor resentment, we hold grudges. And notice this, this isn't even me holding a grudge against somebody, it's somebody holding a grudge against me. I'm supposed to fix a grudge that someone else has? Jesus said, if you wanna be my disciple, yeah. By the way, you don't find that anywhere in the 10 Commandments. All the 10 Commandments says is, have your grudge, just don't murder them. Jesus said, no. Not for somebody who wants to follow me. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Even my old ways of dealing with resentment and dealing with grudges and anger, everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting that message to who? 
to us. If we're not reconciling, if all we're doing is being angry and holding grudges and thinking that we're righteous because we're not murdering them, then we're not doing what we've been called to do. We should not be satisfied with just others breathing because God was not satisfied with just you and me breathing. Did he leave us in Egypt? No. He said, don't just not kill, but be reconciled. We live on higher ground. Oh, and he adds this too. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown in prison. Don't count on litigation to reconcile you. A lawsuit usually does not make friends, does it? Anger and acting on it. Lawsuits. All begins with something inherently selfish. Reconciling is not. It's done for the sake of the other as well as ourselves. As a matter of fact, Jesus paints it as if you do it for the other, you've done it for yourself. If I go reconcile a grudge that someone has against me, I mean, I'm, I'm the one responsible. He's the one with the grudge, Greg. He should be the one. No, Jesus says, if you go and do that, if you do it for him, you've done it for yourself. So that's what being on the inside That's what claiming to live by another standard should do for us. We look at the law differently. We don't look merely to keep it. We look to fulfill it. So murder, then the next one, of course, kind of comes in it. You've also heard it said, you shall not commit what? You shall not commit adultery. Now again, this word here, we usually look at adultery as sex outside of marriage, but actually he is saying all kinds, every kind, of sexual deviation, nothing. Any, married people having sex with someone else, married people not having sex with someone else, just just all of it. Jesus does not distinguish here. He doesn't want anybody drawing the line because there's something at stake here far more important. The same way that there was something at stake for just not murdering somebody, he said there's something more at stake here than just sex is what he's saying. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust. By the way, who did he leave out completely in this conversation? Who's he talking to? He's talking only to the men. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery where? In the heart, that's why he uses that term. See, if you define adultery as only sex outside of marriage, then maybe I might find other sexual acts that I could do within those confines. Jesus said, no, not as one of my followers. You even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Once again, the motive, it's a selfish act. Lust is a selfish act. Guys, she doesn't belong to us. She doesn't belong to our eyes. She doesn't belong to our thoughts. It isn't fair. By the way, living in biblical times absolutely, positively was not fair to women, period. I'm sorry, ladies. The Bible kicks you in the teeth 
living in biblical times. The Bible looks at you as property. And that's what Jesus is attacking here. Keeping the law doesn't address the fulfillment. Lust begins here. It begins here, not in our flesh. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It's the luster's problem, not the object of the luster. We're at fault. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you, men. I struggle with the same problem. I have and do and probably will. Jesus said the only thing you can do about this, Greg, is to get at the heart. We're responsible for our anger and our lust. Which is, which is crazy because most, I read most modern, uh, what you would consider complementarian uh, theology uh, evangelicals today, and they, they blame the woman. They have sermons out there, sermons out there right now condemning women in yoga pants. By the way, young people think it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous argument. But it seems that all of these evangelicals out there, they blame the woman for how they're dressed. It's your fault. And all they have to do is read those right there. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Not ban yoga pants, but to do something about your eye. It's anger and lust are as selfish as murder and adultery because they are the roots of murder and adultery. Selfishness is no longer the motive for the disciples' behavior. Notice the one who's lusting is the one to take the blame. Their eye, their hand. Selflessness. And he said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman causes uh, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jesus' day, a man was allowed to divorce his wife as long as he gave her a certificate. Moses said, give her a certificate. And actually, Moses was trying to help out the women that were being abandoned right and left in that, in, in that day. Because before that, there was no certificate of divorce. Men were just dropping them. And if you didn't have a son who was willing to take you into the house, ladies, if your father wasn't willing to take you back, and uh, the law didn't even allow another man to take you, Moses was trying to do something about it. And what did they do? They looked at the letter of the law and thought that Moses giving the certificate of divorce meant that he was condoning divorce. Jesus said no. Jesus says it's not good enough. That's not good enough, he says. Nothing but sexual immorality. Speaking to uh, men that considered themselves moral, that they never ever would commit adultery. He, he's speaking to them, 
And he's saying that, that is the only reason you're allowed to divorce. And he goes, well, wait a minute. That's what I fight every day to keep from doing. And I've been successful at it. I've never had sex with another woman. But once again, what is all this for? Is it so the husband can be happy? Is it so that a divorce could happen at least one of the couple would still be right and allowed to be in the church, allowed to stay in the church? Is that the reason for the certificate? Is that the reason for that? He said, no. It's because when you do, you even cause her to commit adultery. What choice did a divorced woman have back then? So these self-righteous men first believed as long as they don't commit the act, then they're righteous. Jesus saying that the heart isn't even, that your heart isn't even close to being pure in this case. If you can divorce just because you write her a certificate, I've got a problem with that, Jesus says. You know that Jesus will repeat this later in Matthew 19 to somebody who asked him about this. Was Moses right in doing this? They wanted to know how he felt about whether or not it was right to, for a man to divorce his wife. And, and, and he says this, he repeats this. He says, I, Moses gave you the certificate because he was trying to help out women. But he said, I think that the only reason for divorce would be adultery. And did you ever remember or notice the disciples' reaction when he said that? The disciples said, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. If I can't give my wife a certificate of divorce in order to be able to marry somebody else because I want to have sex with somebody else, then it's better not to what? It's the inside voice that Jesus is saying is the problem. It's not whether or not keeping the letter of the law allows you to divorce, prove that one is right and the other isn't, but the problem might be, he says, that you view women as property and I have a problem with that. Maybe your problem is your letter of the law theology is demeaning and abusive to women. And then just a note, that he says there is grounds for divorce with adultery, but did he command divorce? No. Why? Because by grace we have been forgiven, maybe by grace then we can forgive. He's saying it's possible, not necessarily, but it's possible that somebody could be forgiven even for adultery. Reconciliation is possible. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 65. Commenting on this verse, Ellen White says, the grace of Christ and this alone can make this institution what God designed it to be. An agent for the blessing and uplifting of humanity. Letter of the law says no. Letter of the law leaves the condemnation on one of the two, not both, but maybe both. By the way, we are not too many years removed where in the case of divorce, the church used to automatically disfellowship both the husband and the wife. Because they didn't want to get involved in who did what and who did not. 
So they told both, they told a couple at the absolute worst time in their lives that neither one of them belonged in the church. Simply because they didn't want to get it too messy. We, the church. You know, and if Ellen White says the grace of Christ alone can make this institution what God designed it to be, then maybe the church should take that into consideration on how we treat our members who unfortunately have had to divorce. Why are we standing in the way of reconciliation? Maybe not between those two, but at least them being reconciled where? I guess what I'm trying to say is the law as a standard of righteousness falls so woefully short for all of us disciples. The problem is is it seems attainable. It seems attainable. As I pointed out last week, George Knight said, it's a whole lot easier for me to take on sin in little manageable bite-sized chunks than it is for me to love my neighbor as, as myself. It was easier for me to quit eating cheese than it was to forgive my neighbor. So if the law says I can do one without doing the other, then I'm good. But then there's that pesky Jesus again. Nah. You don't want to be satisfied with that. So in living out the sermon, living the inside voice, it's an inside tension. One on the one hand that says, anything that makes me feel comfortable with God's moral standard, anything that makes me feel at last I have arrived, it's a cruel deception. But on the other hand, realizing we don't measure up and never will, feeling uncomfortable with God's forgiving love is also a cruel deception. Remember, Paul ends this daily struggle in Romans 7 that he has with self, this daily struggle knowing that now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it should open us up to the possibility of what it really means to seek fulfillment rather than just keeping. Real quick, where we are in in prayer meeting, if you want to join us. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're free, he says. But what we're free to do is to love. And we are free. God, if God proves his love, if he proves that he was free enough to send his son to die, then we're free to believe that and live that not just for us, but for each other. If we do it, it's possible then to live out that love if we have faith, if we believe. And love then ends up being the only motivation for you and I to do anything. My self-righteousness then finds a dead end. See, because all of a sudden I can continue to try to speak to God as, as relating as the Pharisee does. I'm not a thief, I'm not a rogue, I'm not an adulterer like that guy. If he begins to work on my heart, then maybe I become more concerned with him than I do looking good before God. And maybe I can begin to reach out to him and he could be my brother rather than my stepping stool. We're free to do that. We're free to love as we have been loved. We're free to forgive as we've been forgiven. 
We are to be merciful as mercy has been had on us. Deuteronomy 7 says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you. I like to stop right there. It's because the Lord loved you and kept that oath, that oath of love that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I started my story and I, I, maybe I didn't quite tell you that yes, I did go help her that day. I did go help her on that Sabbath. My problem was though, is that I didn't have a vehicle. <laughs> Nellie and I owned a minivan. And I could take the seats out of the minivan, but that's not gonna get a couch in it. I needed a truck. So she only knew to call me. I only knew to call one other person, and that was our head deacon. And I said, man, I've got a problem. I said, actually, no. I said, she has a problem. <laughs> I said, and I don't expect you, because my head deacon, he's pretty buttoned up, man. He's pretty, uh, you know, he was very, very extremely conservative, okay? He was not a very, he never let his hair down because his hair was very short, let's put it that way, all right? But he also was the sweetest kindness man you've ever met. Somebody who would do anything for anybody. But I wasn't 100% sure at that particular time how well I knew him, how he felt about whether or not we should be doing work on the Sabbath. So all I asked was, man, I just need your truck. Can I come over and pick up your truck? He goes, I'll be right there. And he hung up on me. I'll be right there, click. And when he pulled up, he just honked. He, wasn't, he didn't come to leave me the truck, he came with me. But here's what happened. Here's what happened in driving over there. He gave me a dilemma that has still weighed upon me all these years after this entire story. He says, Pastor, he goes, there is nothing I love more than helping others. And I will tell you, we'd only known him a year up until then, and he proved that every day, especially to us. We lived in a parsonage that the church owned. He thought that the head deacon's role was to make sure that the parsonage had everything that we needed. And he called every day to ask us if there was anything that needed to be done. When our hot water heater went out, I only had to make one phone call. When anything ever happened to that parsonage, I only had to make one phone call. And he took care of us. And he said, Pastor, there is nothing I love more than helping other people as we're driving to this ox in the ditch. And he said, but scripture says that if I turn my foot from, on Sabbath from doing my pleasure, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So he said, I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be doing this. I love helping so much. That's my pleasure. A man who loved God so much that the very first time that he gave me his testimony, he can tell you the day that he gave his heart to Jesus. He was 17 years old. Here it was, 60 years later, he's telling me that story and he still cries when he tells it. 
But 55 years later in this church, he still did not know whether or not doing good was a sin. He still struggled with whether or not helping somebody, loving somebody as God has loved him, that it might be a sin. Our church is the only church he's ever been a member of, which by the way, he loves more than he loved himself, his church. The inside boys. I'm not sure that I brought any of it up or to go down this road to make any of us comfortable. How many here are uncomfortable? How many here should be comforted though that we are loved and that we are forgiven and that we're atoned for and that he still calls us back each and every day? Blessed are the poor in spirit we're being reminded every day and every day if we are reminded of that and ask him, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner, we have what we need for the day. And if we begin to live in that love and that grace, and not holding up a, a, a standard that is chiseled into stone that has no mercy in it, no blood in it, allows us to look at other people as less important, as demeaned, maybe even somebody to be abused. And we turn to that grace and that righteousness, then every day he'll give us, he'll give us what he's promised. And we get to do that together. I was told once that a pastor needed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So if you're afflicted, I guess I did my job, but I have to tell you, I had to afflict myself in front of you. Because uh, it's not easy. I know that it isn't easy for any of us. But I am happy that we get to do it together. So if you're still okay, we'll spend a little more time in the inside voice. Thank you for your, your time, guys. Thank you for the journey.